Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the live media and current affairs panel show for the week commencing the 1st of June. I'm your host, Mariam Chihab. Today we'll be discussing the Australian's new series on Muslim Australia, desensitisation to certain news topics, and claims the ABC misreported an animal abuse story. Joining me in the studio is Paul Maley, National Security Correspondent for the Australian High Four. Hello. Alan Stokes, Chief Editorial Writer at the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi, Alan. G'day and Dr. Nasha Barfin, journalism lecturer at Monash University, who has been a journalist with ABC and SBS. Hi, Nasha. Hey. To have your says on the issues that we're discussing, get in touch through Twitter. Our handle is at 4th Estate AU, all letters, no numbers. The Australian recently announced a special series focusing on Muslim Australians and Islam, titled Community Under Siege. The editorial claimed this series would, quote, analyse Muslim Australia, its successes and vulnerabilities, and how it fits in an open and pluralistic society. The editorial claims the series is not about attacking Islam, but about rallying to the cause of good Muslims who are struggling for the soul of Islam. And I'm quoting there too. So far, they've covered stories on immigration, economic disparity, religious division and discrimination, focusing on how these can increase chances of radicalisation. Paul, what was the rationale behind this series? Look, Mariam, I think it was born simply of a desire to to explore what's become a very topical issue, um, a very controversial issue, and an issue that um, the Muslim community itself increasingly is is talking about. I think those really were the primary reasons, and to look at, uh, as the editorial says, and as you just read, you know how how Islam fits within uh, an open and pluralistic society. Alan, considering the context and the political environment that we are in, how necessary is it to have a specialist series about Australian Muslims? I think it's a very valid thing to do. I think probably Australians should be commended for taking it on. I think the real issue, though, is how it's framed and whether the Australian comes at it with an open mind. It says it's, you know, it's going to have an unflinching series of articles, but it begins with an open mind. Well, we've got to wonder whether they're actually conducting an inquiry and they know what the outcome will be. Uh, you've got to look at the political context as well already. I think in, in an interview that Paul did with Scott Morrison, uh, he's very quickly linked refugee policy to uh, the issue of terrorism and uh, and the Muslim community. Now, you know, he's entitled to do that. He's a government minister, but at the same time, he really has... Uh, a very good chance here to push an agenda 
and that's what the Australian will have to be very keen to avoid. Look, I, I'm just going to butt in there. I mean, I, I think, firstly, Morrison's views are worth reporting. Nobody would, would dispute that. They are provocative, you might argue. Um, but, you know, this is the guy who was the, a former immigration minister and is now the social securities minister. He is well-placed. Whatever you think about him, he is well-placed to offer an opinion on these things, and it's foolish and arrogant of anybody not to listen. Those views were reported fairly. They were interrogated by us, by me, and and we reported them. We also reported in that opening edition of that 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 campaign, we reported a spectrum of stories that I think uh, endeavoured to to, to 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 do justice to all sides. We wrote that splash, that front page story, but our front page inquirer was um, uh, basically uh, an exposition of the views of Mohammed Omran, a radical sheikh down in Hume Islamic Centre, uh, and. He talked extensively about his experiences as, as a Muslim Australia. Um, we quoted Jamal Rifi. We quoted, um, uh, you know, successful uh, uh, Muslim migrant families. You know, we qu- we quoted a spectrum, and I think we will continue to uh, to include those views. Well, Naja, what do you think, and who do you think this series will benefit? Well, I'd agree with uh, with Alan in that it is, there is a danger that you do come across um, a predetermined outcome with a series like this. But that's a criticism that I think uh, the Australian can sort of easily, um, you know, easily refute or easily uh, meet head on. So just as an example, um, with... Uh, Prime Minister Tony Abbott's uh, comments about the the welfare payments of of people who have gone over to fight for ISIS and similar groups uh, being cut, um, as long as the Australian can say, well, we've reported this, but then we're also going to report on the follow-up where a Senate um, hearing was told that there wasn't actually, um, you know, that there weren't actually any foreign um, fighters who were in fact on the dole. Um, That's, I guess, a a criticism that that can um, easily be refuted. Um, Look, Every single time you you, um, you do something like this, I think there will always be people within the Muslim community who find it an attack. The Australian says the Syrians is not an attack, but there will always be people who, who see it as one. They may p- point to, for instance, the language, community under siege, that sort of thing. Um, but the reality from what I've seen so far of the Syrians is that they are um, allowing a, a range, I guess, of, of voices from the community. Um, everybody knows the Muslim community is like... Um, it's this wonderful Pandora's box of conflicting views. You ask a question of three Muslims, you'll get like six different opinions. Um, and I mean, from what I've seen of it so far, they are showing a, a range of, of viewpoints. Um, the other criticism, of course, that can be levelled at the Australian for something like this is that um, in an issue as complex as radicalisation, particularly within the current climate, do you really want a commercial news organisation to be taking this on? Um, and for better or worse, the reality is these days people do turn to the media as a form of education, as a form of um, you know, as a resource about a topic, um, and it's not like uh, if people have an issue with some of the things that the Australian says in this day and age, we've got a lot of ways to amplify the voices of criticism. So there are ways to to sort of respond. Well, speaking of criticism, Paul, a lot of people would have read Rupert Murdoch's tweet back in January, where he said that until Muslims destroy their quote growing jihadist cancer, they must be held responsible. Do you think his views will influence the way people view the series or judge the Australian's performance? Look, they will influence the views of some, clearly. Uh, I think there is there are people people out there who think that, that, that everything Rupert Murdoch says is sort of transmitted instantly into the news pages of, of his newspapers. That's not been my experience as a report on The Australian. I've, with my hand on my heart, can say I've never been told what to write. 
Um, I recall that quote from Murdoch. Um, it, I, I don't have a particular view on it. It doesn't influence me. It's not relevant to what I do as a reporter. It's not relevant to my work in this series, uh, and I don't expect it to be relevant. Alan, do you think people would judge the Australian's performance based on Rupert Murdoch's tweet? I think it would have uh, some some influence. Uh, I think probably the greater influence would be the positioning of the Australian newspaper in the media landscape. The Australian newspaper is self-avowedly conservative. Um, I have worked there for 11 years. I've been chief editorial writer of The Australian. I've been at the coalface when it comes to influence from Murdoch down into editorials. And Paul is right. No one tells you what to write. But editors second guess their bosses and that's the way the culture is and I think anyone who works at the Australian senior position would have to accept that and if they don't well then that's their right to do so but I certainly think if you look at this editorial that kicked off this series it's very clear he, they have uh, all despite saying that we'll go in there with a fair mind and open mind they say the words deluded progressives. Now, deluded progressives is code for anyone who's not of the conservative mindset that the Australian seeks to monopolise in Australian media. And that is what gives me some concern about the even-handedness. Certainly in Paul's reporting, absolutely is entitled to report about Morrison most of the stories are very even-handed they've given some prominence to some some not no prominence to others but i think in the end the editorial does tell you what outcome they want i yeah i'm gonna i disagree with that i i i've had discussions with the editors about this and i don't get the sense honestly mate that there is any predetermined outcome here i don't i think this really was let's have a look let's just start reporting on this this subject more earnestly more seriously and and see what becomes of it in terms of you know the language you've described i don't know that it means that i think probably it means that and i'm again i I wasn't involved in the the uh the editorial writing process but i think it probably means let's not be beholden to accusations of prejudice let's not be intimidated by what people might might say about you know delving into what is a very touchy very sensitive very controversial subject let's not be intimidated into you know to looking away because because it's easier that would be my that would be my assumption well Nasha what did you think of the language of the editorial and the rhetoric that they used it's quite funny that the Australian actually pointed out that it didn't want to attack Muslims as who the editorial seems to be attacking are those who are politically you know opposed to to the Australian and that you know that's fine commercial news news organizations um, often take a position on things um, you know, it's it's just something that's sort of accepted, I guess, um, given that we are talking about uh, a news organisation which is entirely dependent on a, on a commercial revenue stream. Um, you know, how where do we where do we think that um, uh, David Hicks w- would be if it wasn't for the fact that Fairfax took uh, you know took a position on that particular issue? Alan, how important is it to get the editorial right when embarking on big investigations such as this one? Editorials are funny things. People don't understand the process that goes into an editorial. It's not just the editor who writes them. It's usually an editorial board who discusses it and then they'll come to a position and they'll write it. And look, giving credit to the Australian's editorial, it does say all the right things about these are the issues confronting the Muslim community and 
On 90% of it, I would absolutely agree. And in fact, the Sydney Morning Herald, where I wrote editorials, would write exactly the same editorial if we were doing a series on it. So all credit to the Australian for that. The question, though, is that at the margin, at the margin, uh, uh, is there some message there that we're trying to get across? Are we really being open-minded? Now, you know, I'm open to looking at the whole series from what I've seen so far. I'd give it, you know, a pass mark, credit mark. I wouldn't give it a distinction because I think there are some worrying elements. But, look... What are the worrying elements? The worrying elements are the uh, the placement, for example, of the Clive Kessler piece on the Inquirer. He's saying de-radicalisation is not possible. He says that the vast majority of the mainstream Muslim population are un- incapable or are neglecting to deliberately stop the radicalisation of their youth. Now, I think that's a dangerous um, thing to put out there without a countering point of view. Well, well, we do put out a countering point of view. I mean, no Muslim Australian has been more heavily and consistently quoted in the Australian than Jamal Riffey. He was our Australian of the Year, if you recall, and Jamal's um, bugbear is the need for counter-radicalisation. He says that the battle is being lost. It's being lost in the communities. It's being lost in the schools. And the government needs to throw money at the problem. They need to front-load all the funding towards counter-radicalisation. Now, he has been given ample space to air that view. That that position has been, that counter-position that you've described, has been very thoroughly and very, uh, I wouldn't say aggressively, but it has been very thoroughly aired in the news pages over the, well, for, for years, really. Paul, in your most recent article for this series, you make the distinction that the bulk of asylum seekers, who are Iranians and Hazara Afghans, are Shia Muslims, while the household names of terror like al-Qaeda and ISIS are extreme Wahhabi offshoots of Sunni Islam. Why is this important point often missed when talking about asylum seekers? Look, I, I can't answer that. I don't know why, but, but I felt the need to put that to Scott Morrison when, when he said... We have a potential issue here with with thirty odd thousand or fifty odd thousand uh, asylum seekers in the community. We don't know necessarily a lot about their backgrounds. Uh, there are indications. Well, we we know that the majority are from Afghanistan and Iran. Uh, that the majority are Muslim. These are Scott Morrison's words, not not my own. And that there are problems down the train line. You know, in future generations, in terms of uh, the potential for for crime. Uh, social dysfunction, and he said terrorism as well. And I said, well, well hang on. Hazar, or Afghans, the majority of the Afghans and the majority of the Iranians have been uh, Shia Muslims. And his argument, and, and this is where Morrison, I think, takes a view that, that might be described as, a delu- you know, that a deluded progressive might, might, might otherwise put, where he says, well, look, religion isn't the issue. Religion isn't always the issue. Don't, don't discount the role of social and economic factors in radicalising these kids. And, you know, one or two generations hence, you know, it's not going to be necessarily determined by their religious heritage or affiliations. It's going to be determined by other social and cultural factors. And he actually took issue with a lot of the conservative commentators who take a very simplistic sort of binary view of these things, who just think that, that, that you know, uh, religious extremism or ISIS is this kind of intrinsic evil and his view was, well, look, there are those, that, that, you know, you do have that category of extremists, but you also have this sort of floating middle who are vulnerable and who can go either way. And if you don't get them and address the social and economic drivers of terrorism, you're going to have a problem. And that was really his point. And it was quite a contrarian point for a, um, you know, a, a right wing conservative to make, to be honest. Nasha, how much input or control do Australian Muslims have over the narrative in Australia about themselves? 
Um, so these are topics which are incredibly complex and, and multi-layered, but a few years ago there, there wasn't, you know, there weren't that many avenues for Muslim Australians to express themselves uh, in this day and age without social media, you know, television shows, um, news organisations are finding that, um, for instance, places like The Project or The Weekly will find that even if their ratings are a little bit, um, you know, are a little bit off, they can put a little segment on Facebook and have that segment shared a lot and people will comment on it. So in a way, I guess, um, you know, amplifying the, the voices of people within the community is much easier now because, you know, you've got, I guess, your own options in terms of, of reacting to things outside of the um, commercial media's own sort of uh, paywalled or commented, or, you know, or moderated comments. You're on Fourth Estate. I'm Mariam Chihab and I'm joined by Paul Maley from the Australian, Nasha Baffin, journalism lecturer from Monash University and Alan Stokes from the Sydney Morning Herald. For about four weeks now, thousands of migrants from Myanmar and Bangladesh have been stranded adrift in the Bay of Bengal in the North Indian Ocean. Many of them are Rohingya Muslims who the UN has labelled as one of the most persecuted groups in the world. You may have read about them in the paper, or maybe you haven't. Perhaps instead you saw stories about Johnny Depp's dogs. Well, despite the disturbing stories and footage that have emerged from the Bay of Bengal crisis, the story was largely overshadowed by domestic, somewhat trivial affairs. In Iraq, the capture of the city of Palmyra by ISIS led to stories questioning the fate of the ancient ruins in the city. More than 400 people have been killed since. And closer to home, the closure of Indigenous communities and frequent Aboriginal deaths in custody do not usually make front-page news. Alan, you've written about desensitisation before. Are some lives simply worth more than others in the media? I I think they are not worth more, but sometimes they're treated as though they're worth more. I think uh, that's partially a result of the media gatekeepers, if you like, making rational decisions about what they think readers want to read. It's the old broccoli and M&M's thing. We need to get enough M&M's out there to suck you in to eat the broccoli. I think that's quite rational, but it it's also taken to an extreme at times. Uh, having worked on many a news desk and had to make thousands of decisions of this every day, I hate to admit it. I feel guilty and terrible about what I've done in newspapers at times, not all the time, but at times, where I've had to basically weigh up, well, what's a, you know, the death of 20 Pakistanis worth versus someone who's you know, having a neighbourhood dispute in Sydney. It's, it's a difficult decision. I've, you know, I've written about it, not in a light-hearted way, but in a way that looks at and says, look, there is a death calculator. It's an unofficial death calculator. Every person who works in newspapers knows that it's about news judgments. The news judgments aren't already always right because we're human beings. We have cognitive biases. We tend to focus on and care more and show more empathy for certain events and certain things just as you do in life. You care more about if your dog is sick and you're taking it to the vet than you do if there's, you know, greyhound live baiting, for example. It's just a cognitive bias. You will tend to want things closest to you and care more about them. Now, news, you could argue news outlets should be above and beyond that. Easier said than done. So what are the factors then that lead to desensitisation? I think it's the decision-making of the placement of the news. The news judgments is the first thing. Uh, how much space you give to a, to, a, to a particular issue uh, and also the debate around it. Now, you know, the, of, of all of those things you spoke and many other things, there are real important policy debates to be had 
and debates about how Australia can respond to these things. But if we're not putting the forefront as news organisations, not putting these issues to the forefront of the people's minds, they get left off the agenda. So you then can sneak through things like let's cut foreign aid because people don't think about foreign aid. You know, let's not let's have a refugee policy that puts children in to mandatory detention when at the same time we're outraged that a private school in Sydney might be abusing kids 30 years ago. Now, that sort of equation goes on every day in a news organisation. Most of the time we get it right, sometimes we don't. Paul, is the media catering to this desensitisation or is it driving it? I don't know the answer to that. I, um, I don't think you should con- confuse the news interest or the, 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 the news interest that people might have about a particular event with the value judgments they make about that event. I think, you know, if, if it snowed in Blackheath in February, there'd be a lot of coverage of that and there's probably going to be less coverage of, you know, uh, a natural disaster in Nepal. But I don't think you should assume that because people are more interested in reading about snowing in Blackheath in February that they're indifferent to the suffering in Nepal. So I think you've got to be careful not to equate you know, news judgments of that sort, and I agree with most of what Alan just said, but but I don't think they necessarily equate to value judgments. I think people can still can still empathise with with um, the kind of mass suffering that um, is conveyed to them, often very distantly through newspapers and news outlets. But do you think the twenty four seven nature of news has made it harder for people to feel that empathy? I think the volume of it probably has. I think there's so much. Uh, uh, yes, I do. But I, I would say not so much not so much the news cycle. I would say probably social media has had more to do with it than, than anything else. I think you can now log on to Twitter uh, or any other, just about any other social media platform, and you can, within a few mouse clicks, be exposed to the most horrific things, and people often are. And I think that goes a long way towards, towards desensitising people. Nasha, after all these horrific videos of ISIS and the images of people starving on boats in the Bay of Bengal... Are audiences simply craving ignorance? I don't know whether they're craving ignorance, and I'd certainly agree with what Paul and Alan have have just said. I, too, now, in retrospect, feel incredibly guilty about the times I was on, you know, the um, Radio Australia or the Australia Network desk, and every time an ABC correspondent or a stringer would call and say, I've got, like, this great story, there's been this happening, the first words that would come out of my mouth would be, did anyone die? You know, and in retrospect, that seems now that I'm out of the, the you know, out of the out of a newsroom. In retrospect, that seems horribly, um, you know, the opposite of being sensitive. But at the time, we never thought about it. That's just how we determined how something was important to our audience. Um, in terms of the two examples that you mentioned, are really interesting. I was just about to mention that it's not just um, the judgments that people who are involved in production put on these stories but it's also the actual content itself now isis knows knows this or daesh right isis absolutely knows this and they know that people will be more horrified that um, they have this sliding scale so when james foley was beheaded the, the world was shocked but then the subsequent beheadings i love you know um the japanese guy people were less shocked right and isis know this so they ramped it up and so they burnt the jordanian pilot alive you know, and it, it's almost as if they, they are aware of the fact that there is, I guess, compassion fatigue among audiences. Um, I did read, and I cannot remember where, I did read a, a reporter say something along the lines of, um, as this anniversary of the, of the Syrian um, war uh, reaches us, the number of people dead in Syria is equivalent to the MCG 
on grand final day, but three times left over. I mean, that really sort of visualises it. So if we follow sort of our, our adhered to sort of news formats in terms of hard news, people are not going to care because if you say very, very quickly... 300,000 people have died in Syria or 500,000 people have died, whatever it is, that number doesn't mean much. Whether you read it, whether you hear it, whether you see it on TV, that number just doesn't mean much. But if you paint it in a way that people can imagine, okay, the MCG on grand final day, packed to capacity, and then three times over, you know, and then that sort of then makes the the thing hit home. Um, With the Rohingyas, this is one of those issues which... um, I mean, look, uh, we covered it a lot at the ABC, but that's because we were at the ABC's international desk. It's not something that the general news-consuming audience would really know about. And it's a, it's a yearly thing, this latest round of boats in Aceh, in, in Indonesia. You know, they deal with this every single year. Every single year they get people um, fleeing from, uh, from Myanmar or Burma. Um, so I guess that's uh, one area which, you know, they're, they're different to us, that we don't know much about them. We don't know much about the circumstances in which they, they, um, they've arrived on um, Malaysian or Indonesian shores. And so it's not so much that that translates to Australians don't care about it. It more translates to, well, we don't know enough to care about them. This is Fourth Estate. I'm Mariam Chihab and I'm joined by Paul Maley from The Australian, Dr. Nasha Baffin, journalism lecturer from Monash University, and Alan Stokes from The Sydney Morning Herald. Our third topic is a bit of a strange one. The ABC has been accused of misleading the public after they reported that PETA, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, had complained about sheep being verbally abused by shearers in far west New South Wales. Peter's complaints actually involved people punching a lamb in the torso and standing on a sheep's head and neck, and they've complained that the ABC failed to mention these facts of physical abuse in their story. Peter was the organisation that lodged the abuse claim last year to the RSPCA, but its evidence was ruled inadmissible. The ABC's stories. The ABC story was picked up by news organisations around the world. Headlines included: Australians are trying to decide if it's okay to swear at sheep. Shearer under fire for verbally abusing sheep. And my favourite, how dare you, sheer rudeness against sheep. <laughs> Paul, how much demand is there for quirky stories? Uh, well, look, I, I, Alan's probably a better place to answer that one as, than I am, having uh, run news tests for many years. But I, I think there's, if not a demand, there's certainly always interest in those sorts of quirky stories. Editors will talk all the time about the need for the mix. You know, you, you want a mix of stories. You want your sort of hard-hitting news story, you, you know, you want your splash, you want your front-page pick with an arresting picture, obviously, that, that, that readers want to look at, and you want, you know, maybe a bit of politics and something colourful, you know. So there's always an interest in a, in a mix, and, and this this one clearly hit the mark. Alan, what do you think? Well, uh, <laughs> it's very difficult because I think, um, if I can use the words, um, readers tend to like tits and bum stories, and uh, a cute animal picture story is a tit and bum story <laughs> of the animal world. And I think uh, in this case, this particular story uh, was verging on animal tits and bums, but it could have gone further. So we shouldn't be too critical of the ABC because they could have found a cat whisperer and they could have found someone who swears at their cat and they got a nice picture of a cute cat. And that would have got far more clicks and far more social media than uh, a silly sheep story. It sounds like you've got compassion fatigue for the sheep there. (laughs) (laughs) Nasha, why would a journalist, though, omit serious facts about animal abuse? 
look, I, I honestly don't know what happened with this particular story. I It could have fallen into that frame of, I mean, organisations are always viewed in certain frames. And then uh, Peter is not viewed as um, incredibly serious by a lot of people, perhaps because of some of the things that they've done in the past. Um, and perhaps the news reporter who was in charge of this story decided that they would you know, it, it sounded like something that Peta would do, would, you know, pull a stunt over something that they that wasn't too... But, you know, as you've heard from the other two panellists, uh, my industry background was in radio and exactly the same thing. Your bulletin could not just consist of Iraq, Syria, earthquake, you know. You had to have light and shade and it's what we teach our students as well. Some of them are far more serious, more into, you know, political reporting. Others flatly declare that they would like to be the person who does the stories about Kim Kardashian. And we say to them, you need to be able to do those stories about Kim Kardashian, but you also need to be able to do the stories about Syria. You also need to be able to do the stories about refugee policy um, and the stories about sheep getting possibly upset through verbal abuse. So um, it is getting a lot tougher for these kids, um, but I guess that's the um, that's the the standard to w- to which they have to to show an employer that they're able to to cover the all of all of these types of stories, the light and the shade. That's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Thank you to our guests Paul Maley, Dr. Nasha Barfin, and Alan Stokes. And don't forget you can check out all our podcasts on the 2SCR website and you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. My name's Mariam Chihab and you can catch us at the same time next week.